Welcome to Christian Life Church Podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Well, we're going to continue our conversation, and it's a conversation I think is well overdue for the church, because if I'm honest with you, I'm not really sure that we are kind of, we've played catch-up really with the hour that we're living in. And um, I think in the last 10 years, particularly, I don't know about you, but the world in which I live in, and I live a very measured and, and cautious life, seems to have changed quite dramatically. Have you noticed that? Some things that were not good are now considered to be good. Some things that were clearly not good are now, sorry, some things that were bad are now considered to be great. People have all kinds of wild notions about what is or isn't real. And, and what's this new phenomena of fake news? Have you heard of that? Have you heard of fake news? You know, I believe that one of the sinister things about that kind of propaganda is that people find it very difficult now to discern what is true. Who do you think is creating that kind of anomaly? It's not God, is it? And people don't know what's right. They don't know what's wrong. They don't know who to trust. They don't know who not to trust. They don't know what institutions are good, what institutions are at their core, maybe corrupt. And the world, the world in which we're all living in has become a very, very difficult place. And um, I think this has been coming for quite some time. I think this is not new. I think it's been submersively in society for quite some time. I think all kinds of things have come to the fore. I don't know if you've watched over the last number of years, but there are agendas being pushed in culture and society. Have you watched that? To the point where parental rights over children are not what they used to be. Yeah? So I want you to think with me this morning, because what we need to do is be prepared for the future that is coming our way. We're getting ready for the more that God wants to do, and also preparing ourselves for the battles that lie ahead of me and you. And there are battles that lie ahead. You know, the Bible tells us, that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And as I look around the world, and sometimes it's not easy to kind of visualize that in a local context, but when I look around the world, there are more indicators of the movements and the power and the blessings of the Holy Spirit than we have ever experienced throughout church history. More people are encountering Jesus just in Islam alone, many people testify to having dreams of Jesus and come from those dreams seeking answers to questions that they already thought they knew the answers to. And they're searching for Jesus. God, by his spirit, is giving people dreams and visions. In fact, I met someone last week who had a vision of Jesus. They're not necessarily as yet a follower of him, but they had a vision of Jesus and they had a number of questions around that that I was very happy to try and answer. I'm not sure I did justice to the fullness of that, but at least I attempted to try and answer that. God is at work in our world. Oh, three of us are really excited about that, Jesus. And just to take it home a little bit, God is at work in your world. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's at work in your life today. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life today. And um, I think if we just had a greater clarity or maybe our spirituality was in a place where we could really fathom or understand or discern that, then I think we'd have a much easier journey here on earth. Because I think sometimes we're actually fighting battles that aren't ours to fight. They've already been won. I think also sometimes that we're not engaging in battles that we need to fight because they need to be won. And all of that comes down to this one reality, walking with Jesus tenderly, walking with him in humility, walking with him in sensitivity. And where does all of that come from? It comes from being with him. It comes from spending time in his presence. So on the way out of church last week, a young man came to me and he said, what's this war room thing that we're talking about? I must say I was a little disheartened because I thought I did an okay job, but... (laughs) The war room is is a term given to a time whenever there's crisis in our culture or in the world and people from a particular group, maybe one country or one particular political agenda, get together and they begin to brainstorm and think and find a solution to a problem. And so that term comes from that. We are, I believe, about to go to battle. Christianity is under attack in our nation. Hello? And if you think you can be passive in this battle, you're going to be really damaged by it. 
You've got to have a fierce heart and such a love for Jesus that it carries you by grace into every adverse circumstance. It's not going to happen automatically that everything that you think will happen will happen because God has subjected the advances of his kingdom to your investments and partnerships with him. So we need to, we need to gather because war is on the horizon. In London, some friends of mine who are street preachers, they find themselves being arrested on a regular basis by the police. One young man just has a message of love, was out on the streets, I think somewhere around um, Poets Corner, and he's talking to this young person, this young guy about the love of God. And because there was somebody sitting quite near him who had another agenda, that person went and called the police, and that young man was arrested and taken to a prison cell, and all he was talking about was the love of God. Now, it's, it's, it's one thing to be horrified by that. That's the starting point. We should say, hang on a second, that can't be right. But it's a whole other thing to respond to that. And our response has to be what? To complain to society, the government, go on Facebook, rant about what we think is or isn't righteous about that act. No, here's what we are called to do. Get on our faces and pray. Get down on our knees and seek God. I stood outside a, a, a building once when I was living in London and there were a whole bunch of what looked to me like Christian people with placards in their hands and it became clear as I was just walking past them that this was some kind of, of clinic to help people who want to terminate their children. And the Christians were out in force and they had every placard and they had all the statements and, you know, the, the salvation statements and the statements about the righteousness of God and the sanctity of life. And as I walked past them, I must confess to you, my heart felt a little sad. And it didn't just feel sad because of what perhaps happens in places like that. I hope, I've been around long enough to know that people don't make decisions in a vacuum. There's all kinds of circumstances around people's lives. It's not for me to judge that. But what saddened me more than that was that the church actually think that that's where their authority is. You see, you can't stand on a street with a placard protesting against something when your greater call is to come before the throne of grace and call on the name of Jesus. And in that partnership with him, that governmental partnership with him, he will use your prayer to transform the world around you. It's one thing to complain in society. It's a whole other thing to be compliant to the invitation to come to him and seek his heart, know his mind and pray and intercede with Jesus till the world around you is changed. Now I want to ask you a question. Do you know that you are a gatekeeper between heaven and earth? Do you know that the Bible says about you, not just me or a pastor or a leader, it says this, that what you bind in the heavens, think about that for a second. Wouldn't it be a good day if you bound some things in the heavens today? Wouldn't it be a good thing rather than gossiping with your friends or talking about how difficult the world is, if you came before the throne of grace and you took authority over some things that actually are destroying people's lives wouldn't that be a better use of your time than TikTok? Wouldn't that be a more majestic moment than some of the other things you give yourself to? You see, we say all these things. I'm not sure we fully believe them. Maybe in here, but not in here, because they don't always turn up in our lives. And if you combine in the heavenly realms, what about loosing some things? There are people living in our world, maybe you're one of them, where oppression has dominated you for so long. Let's get before God and set some captives free. I'm going to keep praying till somebody wakes up and you better be quick because it could be long. Let's set some captives free in the heavenly realms. Let's allow what God has given us to manifest here on earth. It's so important that you take your rightful place. And your place is not the marketplace. That's a secondary place. Your first and foremost place is in the presence of God. So we're going to look at this subject today again. Why don't you lose some things in the heavenly realms? 
I want to talk to you about the purpose of prayer. Why do we pray? Why do we pray? And you know, I've found that there are thousands of reasons. All kinds of people have all kinds of ideas about prayer. But let me tell you some things that perhaps you haven't heard recently. Prayer is actually very good for you. Turn to somebody and say, I think he's talking about you. Prayer is really good for you. I think it was a few years ago I read an article that says prayer actually causes people to live longer. Prayer is good for you. Do you know that prayer gives you more hope? And you know, I want to be honest with you, it doesn't really matter who you're praying to. The very act of prayer, that recognition that you're in your humanity needing someone with power and authority to do something, and the belief that there may well be that someone somewhere that can do something about the something that you're facing, that gives people hope. Do you know that people who pray are less depressed? Obviously, some of you didn't get that memo, but people, <laughs> people who pray are less depressed because there's something about offloading and getting rid of some of the toxic things that trouble our hearts and disturb our minds. And when we are talking to Jesus and laying at his feet all of our problems and our cares, when we cast upon him those things that have been cast upon us, something happens in the physicality of our lives that makes our lives better. Do you know that people who pray are happier? They're happier. They're happier people. So there's all kinds of reasons why prayer is good, just from a physiological point of view, from a psychological point of view. Can you imagine what it's like to be able to talk to someone who knows everything about everything and for them to not shut you down, but to listen to you and to care deeply about what's happening with you? From a psychological point of view, in many ways, you probably don't need the therapist you're paying a fortune for because you have one who knows everything about everything and loves you in spite of all things. And his heart and his passion for you is impeccably full of love, grace, mercy, and kindness. Who wouldn't want to spend time with somebody who had those perspectives on your life? And yet, the truth is, church, for all kinds of reasons, prayer somehow is something less than that in many of our ideas. So I want to take you to this scripture because I think it kind of answers this question for us a little bit. The question, remember, hanging over our lives is this. What's the purpose of prayer? And Jesus in John 15 verses 15 to 17 says this. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not his master's business instead I have called you for everything I learned from my father I have made known to you and look at this wonderful statement you did not choose me aren't you grateful for that statement in the scriptures because some days you don't choose him do you you did not choose me I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And Jesus is showing us really what prayer is all about. And prayer is simply this. It's moving from a place of servanthood into a posture of sonship. It's moving from wanting to work for God and stepping into the reality of worshiping the Father who delights in you. It's a massive shift for many of us. Perhaps you could shut that door for me, would you please? It's a massive shift for many of us. You're welcome to come in. But we all need to move. Yeah. Where was I? 
We're moving. Shut that door quick. I'm only kidding. Thank God for men that are bold like that. But we can never be 100% sure what's going on. Um, we're moving, and we're all moving, and we continue to move as we're led by the Spirit into deeper revelations as his children. Now, what is the difference? And Jesus, I think, highlights it for us. He tells us this, that a servant does not know his master's heart. You see, I think for many of us, and we're all servants in this room, we may know God, we may serve God, we may have a disciplined life regarding God, but Jesus did not come to get you to work for God. Jesus did not come to get you activated in the kingdom. This is not some employment project that Jesus initiated through his death and his resurrection. Jesus came to bring you home to the heart of God the Father. He came to lead you. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except they come through me. And Jesus came not to enroll us in some project, but to invite us to the greatest purpose of life, and that is to know God, to know God personally for ourselves, to move away, if you like, from some of the trappings of servanthood into a posture of sonship. Now, I've got a daughter, she's 24 years of age, and it's a startling thing to say this, but she knows every PIN number for every card that I possess. <laughs> I think she has apps on her phone that use my money to her own advantage. I'm convinced of it. Now, what is that? That's sonship, because she's not someone working for me. She's someone I love and someone who loves me. And of course, I have no problem. I trust her that she will utilize that information to her best advantage. If you want to be a son of God, it means you have access to certain pieces of information and revelation that actually is very good for you. It gives you all kinds of privileges as a child of the Most High God. So the purpose of prayer is maybe not what we've been told it is. It's not even about changing the nations. It's not even about personal transformation or sanctification. The whole purpose of prayer is that we would know God's heart. So I have to ask you a question. When I pray, when you pray, do I come away from those prayer moments with a greater knowledge of his heart? Or have I just dispensed all of the things I wanted to say to him? Have I just come with my list of things that I need him to do? I was talking with some Christians a, a couple of years ago at a church I was ministering in, and um, I asked them, what are you praying for currently? And uh, the usual answers came forward. Somebody needed a mortgage. Anybody need a mortgage this morning? Anybody trying to get out of a mortgage this morning? Let's start with that one. That's probably, yeah, Amen. Apparently, the, the word for mortgage is almost like the sentence of death, apparently, in its original form. Um, and this, this person stood up and they said, you know, I'm praying that God would give us a baby. They've been trying for a baby. Great, great couple. And we prayed for them. And somebody else got up and they said, you know, I want a better job. I'm not earning enough money. And we prayed for them. And somebody else got up and they said, you know, I really would just love to be able to get through my exams and make sure that I've got all the qualifications I need. And, and as I listened to the array of things that people were praying for, I realized this one thing, this one thing that's so important, that most people's prayers are about themselves. Most of the time and energy and resource we offer God in prayer is about improving our own lives. I mean, there'll be the odd occasion where there's a crisis and you probably will pray for a friend or a relative who's sick or in need. But generally, 99.9% .9 of the time, your prayers are about you. Would that be fair? What if God was inviting you to somewhere different than that? What if this governmental anointing that God had placed on your life was about nations? What if the same prayers that you use to see your own life enhanced or improved actually could affect a city or a nation? You see, we have not because we ask not. And we ask not because we do not understand the power of prayer. 
Prayer is you partnering with the God of the universes to bring about his plan and his purpose. Don't let your prayer life fall into the trap of just being about you when you can release the blessing of God over a nation. Does anybody want Nigeria to be blessed and blessed and blessed by God? What about Ghana? Anybody from Ghana here this morning? God picked you from those nations as gatekeepers to release his life, to release his power, to release his goodness over a nation. Is there anybody here from Ireland? It's just me and Katie, isn't it? Okay, God picked me because he wants me to pray and to release his blessing over that little green land where Jesus really lives. <laughs> but only in the south, only in the south. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Sorry, she's disagreeing. She's disagreeing. We're gatekeepers, not just of our own homes or our own hearts, but of our communities, of our nations, of this world. And when I keep praying and thinking small in the way I communicate with God, I am not realizing the vast expansive reality of his power. I have a local Christ, but not a global Christ. I have a personal Jesus, but not necessarily a corporate Jesus. Because God, in his great wisdom, wants to use your life to affect the world for good. Someone say amen. amen. But it all comes from knowing his heart. Knowing his heart changes everything. You see, when you know the heart of God, when you're not coming as a servant with a list of things you want God to do, or even demanding that he does X, Y, and Z for you, but you're coming and you say, God, my intent today is to know you. I want to walk away from this experience knowing more about you. Let me tell you a, a secret, a secret that God t taught me years ago. Uh, I think I was probably in Bristol at the time. I was in a time of prayer. And suddenly, in my imagination, I saw this elderly black gentleman sitting in a very small and what looked like quite a, a kind of um, dark room. And he's rocking backwards and forwards in, in his chair and he's praying. And as I saw him in my imagination, I remember doing what most of us do when moments like that happen. I tried to dismiss it, but the Holy Spirit kept bringing him back to mind. And I began to look in my imagination to this situation a bit more open. And I found myself feeling in my prayer life here in the West Country what he was feeling in his room wherever he was. And I began to weep and I began to cry and I began to see all these things that God was showing me about this man's life. Things that for many, many reasons I would have no knowledge of except that the Holy Spirit had used this moment in my prayer time to connect me with someone else who was praying on the other side of the world about difficulties they were facing. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been praying and you've had like this weird thought about someone? Of course you have. And the Hebrew word for that particular interception is a word called paga, which means that God intersects our thinking and our imaginations with a thought that's on his mind. The book of Isaiah tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts, his words are not our words, neither are his ways our ways. And there you were and there I am, praying for my own life. And suddenly I'm caught up with something on the other side of the world to do with somebody else's life. Well, you know, I did what most of us would do. I got up from that prayer time and I got on with my day and never thought too much of it, to be honest. And then about three or four years later, I was now the regional leader for the Southwest and I'm in a little church in Red Ruth in Cornwall. And I'm standing there and I'm preaching and I'm talking again about prayer because it has been a subject I regularly thought about over the years. And I'm talking about, you know, all kinds of ways in which God uses us to pray for people. And I happen to mention that one of the things I've learned with Jesus is this, that Jesus is our great high priest and he intercedes night and day for all of us. Amen. I wonder what it would look like if I knew his heart and could hear what he was praying. And so I went on this adventure for a number of years with God, just wanting to have some prophetic insight into what Jesus, the great high priest, is praying for us. 
So I'm telling this story, and this little elderly gentleman, this little black elderly gentleman, now if you've ever been to Cornwall, there's not many people from different nations in Cornwall, certainly not in Red Ruth. It's kind of a, an enclave where, you know, it's just surfers and people who are running from the police. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? But <coughs> nobody really goes there. And he came up to me, and he said to me, I recognize you from somewhere. I recognize you from somewhere. And then he started to nod. He said, I saw you in a vision I had about four years ago. I said, really? He said, yes, I was praying in my room. I had a terrible situation in my life, and I was rocking backwards and forwards. And I was praying to Jesus, and you came to my mind. He said, you've put a bit of weight on since then, haven't you? thanks, Thanks. Thank you. You see, we have this tendency to limit our ability to understand the heart of God. We have this tendency to restrict what God wants to say or show us because we're preoccupied with our own lives. But is he not the God of the Spirit who is with us but also with those who know him? And time and time again in my life, God has shown me that some things that seem odd to me when I'm praying actually are supernaturally given so that God can connect his bride across the world to pray more effectively. Imagine, I never knew that man was praying for me. I'd forgotten that I prayed for him. And we shook hands and we hugged and we swapped numbers. But I think he went back home at some point. We just lost touch. God is in the business of showing you his heart. That's what prayer is all about. He wants to show you his heart. And when you know his heart, you pray what he would pray. Can you say amen to that? And that gives you the advantage. In many, many ways, that takes you from being somebody who hasn't a clue what's happening in your world to someone who has been given the privilege of insight and revelation. Imagine the power that God's heart has whenever we partner with it to release it over the earth. Imagine the people, the communities, the nations that could be touched by that. But how do we do that? How do we learn to do that? How do we learn to pray in a way that comes from the heart of God and expresses the heart of God? Thank you, Pastor, for asking that question. It's very warm, but it's a good question, and I'll do my best to try and answer it. The first thing I realize Oh, is this. It needs to start with some honesty. Everything in the kingdom of God is truth-based. And if we don't start from ground zero, we will do what many Christians do and presume we know what we should do. I was chatting with the worship team before the service this morning, and here's the truth, church. Michael on the keyboards has been in more meetings than Jesus himself. That's probably true. (laughs) For years has been leading worship and worship teams. And it's so easy just to stand up here and work from a place of familiarity. So easy to put songs together that musically work. So easy to repeat a line that has a particular prophetic emphasis. There's a skill and an ability that's grown up in his heart and his life over many, many years. And if we're not careful, we can stand in our place and we can presume. We can just presume that we know what needs to happen. We can take all of that experience and pretend to ourselves, and so often that is the case, that we know what God wants to say and how God wants to move. The same is true with our prayer life. We make the presumption that we know how to pray. Now, I'm not trying to be difficult with you this morning, but I do believe this is, I think, a prophetic word over this house in particular. It's time to stop pretending that what we do works. And that's exactly what's happening here with the disciples. The disciples knew how to pray. The disciples were raised in a culture where prayer was part of the spiritual dynamics and disciplines 
of their lives. They had prayed since they were little. They prayed through their teenagers. They prayed all through their lives. But they recognize that when they pray, nothing really changes. But when Jesus prays, everything changes. Now, until we come to terms with the fact that our presumptions may have gotten in the way of God's passions and desires, we're going to carry on doing what we have been doing and we'll see the same results. It's time to be honest enough and say, I prayed for that sick person, Jesus. Why weren't they healed? Oh, let's not get into building a theology around failure. And that's what that is. It's failure. Somehow we've missed something or misunderstood something or presumed something. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pray for people, I go from Genesis to Revelation. I want to make sure I cover every base. I'm binding. I'm loosing. I'm cutting off. Do you do that? Come on. Because I don't really know what God wants to do. I know what the person wants me to do. Often people come and they say, would you pray for this? But if you pause for a moment and say, God, teach me in this moment how to pray with Jesus for the outcome that he desires, you have to take a step back from the familiarity of that process, even from your experience of that process, and you have to become like a child. You have to have more questions than you have answers. And Jesus said this to the disciples, unless you become like little children, you will miss the kingdom of heaven. And so all of us in this room, we have a paradigm of prayer. We've raised, if you're a Christian, in environments where prayer took place. We've been to prayer meetings. We've had a culture in our lives where prayer was part of it. And it shaped our thinking. Let me tell you an example of it. My African brothers and sisters, when we now, when we first got you in our country, we'd say, would you lead us in prayer? And you go, shut up. Okay, now. Holy Spirit of Am I wrong? What happened to you? What happened to you? You see, you get a casserole. It's abstract, but it's true. You take it out of the oven and you can't hold it, it's so hot. You put it in the fridge, and at first, the fridge temperature lifts. Because there's something sizzling in the middle of it. But guess who wins? You come back there the following day, and that casserole is exactly the same temperature as everything else in that fridge. My African brothers and sisters, you have been taught to pray. Here go out of the railing spheres. How wonderful you are. Your greatest expression when you get really excited is, hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's a gift of intercession on the people of Africa. Do not subject yourself to a culture that in many ways dampens the fire that the Spirit of God gave you. Can you hear me? And you think, don't wait, don't clap yourselves. Clap Jesus. You think you're not affected by what happens around you. If I was to talk to you one-on-one, you'd say, Oh, I'm still passionate about Jesus. Oh, God of the railing spheres. <sighs> what happened to you? I think the fridge might have won. Now, this is not just cultural. This is spiritual. It's spiritual. And while we submit to those things, we do so at our own peril because we're not called to be anything other than what we were called to be. You know, whatever I am, I'm going to be Irish, which I'm really grateful for now. I'm really grateful for that. You can take me to New York and I'll still be Irish. I've been to Africa many times. I'm still Irish. I still have a sense of humor nobody gets. I still tell gags in the most inappropriate places. With a shillelagh under me arm. And it's, <laughs> I'll die Irish because I was born Irish. And my culture shaped my Irishisms. You know, in Ireland, you 
Say to somebody, you don't want a cup of tea, do you? <laughs> oh, maybe I don't. <laughs> We've got to stop and think and say, I wonder if I have acclimatized myself like the disciples did to a kind of culture spiritually where I think I know how it works, but actually when I pray, it's not like when Jesus prays. Something is missing. Something is lacking. The power doesn't seem to be there. And the disciples got to that place. And they had watched and listened and saw and heard and witnessed that every time, every time, Jesus lay hands on the sick, they were healed. They'd watched Jesus speak life over lepers who were under a sentence of death, excluded from society, and every sore on their bodies was made well. They've watched a woman caught in adultery who should have been stoned publicly rise from the ashes of her past misdemeanors and walk towards her day with some kind of hope and expectation that maybe God would be merciful. Everywhere Jesus went, the kingdom came. And unless we start being honest that something is not quite working the way we would like it to work and ask Jesus this question, personally, corporately, Lord, will you teach us? Jesus, will you teach us how to pray? In Matthew chapter 6, let's go there. We see that this dynamic is working itself out in their conversation with Jesus. And Jesus offers them an alternative to the cultural nuances and references regarding prayer that they had. He says, and when you pray, verse 5, do not be like the whom. Isn't it somewhat hypocritical? Stay with me, don't hit me. To say God has power and authority and then not ask a question if that doesn't happen? Hello? Is it not? Do we settle for a form of godliness and deny the power thereof? Or do we honestly, openly open our hearts before God and say, do something in me, God, because I would like my prayers to be effectual for your glory and for your kingdom extension. So he says, when you pray, don't fall into the trap of doing it like the people you've seen do it. And he refers to them as hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by others. Jesus is simply saying this to the disciples, do you want to look spiritual or do you want to be spiritual? Now, pause for a minute because I think church, if we're honest, we like to look spiritual. Don't we? I mean, some of you wouldn't wear what you're wearing today, but you put it on because you come into church. To look nice for church, because Jesus always looks at the designer labels and not at the heart. Now, I'm not propagating you come in some filthy thing you were doing the garden in, because I think I wouldn't sit next to you. Just keeping it real for you. I thank God there's enough space. I think I must have the worst BO problem on the planet because nobody sits on the front row. Not even you, my friend. But we're more caught up with trying to look spiritual than be spiritual. We want to look like we've got all the answers. We want to pray like we've got it all down. We think we know everything about everything. Jesus says, truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. God needs to deconstruct our models of prayer, our understanding of prayer, so he can reconstruct the model that Jesus represents and reflects to us. Some things have to go so that greater things can come. It's not that those things are bad or evil. They're just insufficient for the season and the time we're living in. And we need upgrades all around this room. We need God to upgrade our understanding of prayer. 
Matthew 6, verses 8, Jesus goes on to say, But when you pray, in other words, I know you will pray because you have always prayed. But when you pray, don't fall into the trap of trying to look spiritual. Do something that's highly spiritual. And look what that something is. Go into your room. Why? Because if I don't extract myself from the distractions and the complex realities of my life, I will never be able to encounter God. I was doing the garden on Friday or one of those things and I happened before I went to bed on Friday and I just think, well, you know, how long have I used my phone for today? And I thought it was intermittent, you know. I thought, oh, just want to, I, I use my phone like a watch to check the time. And I had, I must confess to you, looked at Marketplace I must confess to you too that I was too lazy to go upstairs, so I rang Jane. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. Confession is good for the soul. Two and a half hours I'd been on my phone. In our world, where there are so many things vying for your attention, so much that brings distraction, both the external and the internal. You honestly can't believe that you could turn up in church and suddenly all of that, that, that interaction emotionally, spiritually, physically you've had with other things stops? No, it doesn't. Some of you were worried. And whatever I'm saying to you today, you're still going to be worried. Some of you are thinking about responsibilities and commitments. And no matter what I say to you today, you're going to be thinking about responsibilities. Your mind is the battlefield. And it's raging against the silence and the solitude that's necessary to encounter the realities of God. The greatest problem in society now is we don't know how to be still. I've taken my daughter on holidays all over the world in these last number of years. The first question, is there internet connection? I remember standing in this beautiful lobby of a hotel and thinking, gosh, I never went anywhere like that as a child. And I'm talking to Emily and she's like distracted and she's walking around trying to find. <laughs> What's going to happen if you're not on the internet for 10 minutes? Will the world grind to a halt if you don't know what's happening on TikTok? Our lives, our minds, our whole being now is so full of information. And you know, the younger generation, they can have their phone on, they can have their iPad on, they can have the television on, and they can have their ear things in. There's a battle, a battle in our world today, a battle for intimacy. And if you're distracted, you will not meet with Jesus. Hello? So go into your room, shut the door. If it wasn't bad enough to extract yourself from people, shut them out. Keep it all outside and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't go on and on and on like the pastor. <laughs> Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Lord, teach us to pray. Let's start with that humble question. Show me how to do this, Jesus. Other people have modeled it. Other people have demonstrated it. Other people have taught me how, when, where, and what it should look like. But I come back to you, Jesus, and I say, Lord Jesus, will you teach me how to pray? Now, Jesus had a particular model of prayer. And I want to just take you to that as we close our thoughts for these final few moments together. In Luke verse 11, verse 1, it says this, that Jesus was praying in a, a certain place. In other words, somehow in the rhythm of Jesus' life, which started by fasting and prayer for 40 days... He had found for himself a particular place, a place or a space that was primarily about him meeting with his father. 
And Jesus models to us the need to find that space, to find that place with God. And um, I think that certain place is the starting place of us developing the kind of relationship with Jesus where he can teach us how he prays. And therefore, as we pray with him, we will find ourselves more effectual in prayer. Now, a certain place could be any place, but it's probably unlikely it's going to be the bus stop on the A38. It may be your car. It may be a coffee shop. It may be a dog walk that you do. But find for yourself, as Jesus found for himself, a certain place. A place to be. A place to meet with God. When we were in Somerset, I had a shed at the bottom of our garden that I actually erected with the hope of finding a place to meet with God. You know, my family life is busy. I had lots of responsibilities. And sometimes finding somewhere where you were just on your own to be with God was harder than it sounded. And so I got this shed and I put it at the bottom of the garden. The problem with the shed was that every time I went down to visit it, which clearly, as you can tell from the next part of this sentence, wasn't that regularly, the grass needed cutting. (laughs) And as I would walk towards the shed, I'd think, oh, I need to get the lawnmower out. The grass needs to be cut. It's in a, I mean, if this is a holy place, it needs to be in order for Jesus, doesn't it? I'd open the doors of this shed and i think, oh, there's cobwebs everywhere. I need to clean this. Can you imagine how often I manage to get to pray when I'm so preoccupied with the externals? And so my place where I used to meet with Jesus, it became my sacred place to meet with Jesus in my car. And in that time, I was in this role. I'd be traveling a lot, and I'd put, you know, some worship on. I'd listen to a sermon. I'd pray. My car was a holy place. It became a holy place. In fact, when I used to give pastors and some of their elders lifts places, they'd say to me, there's something weird about this place. There's something unusual about this place. Your holy place doesn't have to be a building. It can just be a space where you regularly come to meet with God. Now, I want to tell you, there were times and have been many times where I've not felt like praying. There's been times whenever I've said to God, I really have nothing to say today. I don't really know what to do. And I've gone to my sacred place. And just in the act of obedience to going there, God has honored it by meeting me there. We make so much of our human effort and energies whenever God gives us this wonderful opportunity to carve out for ourselves this rhythm and this place, this private, sacred, sometimes solitary, and often, sometimes for people outside of it, confusing place, we will meet with him there. Now, I want to tell you something that I think for me is a bit of a revelation. Not this. This is not a revelation. Still not a revelation. Definitely not a revelation. Our man of prayer got that. The location clearly matters to God. Go to Acts chapter 2 for me. You will have there that on the day of Pentecost, they all were gathered together in one place. Then a sound like a mighty rushing wind came and filled the room where they were praying. The scripture goes on to say that as a result of that, Tongues of fire began to be formed on the heads of the disciples. And they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them to do so. But I want you to pay attention to something that actually brings value to this conversation. And that's this. Who was filled first? The people or the place? The place. 
And you see, whenever we make that kind of commitment to God and say, this is the space where I'd like you to be with me, Jesus, I believe it becomes over time a thin place. Now, a thin place was a Celtic phenomena. They believed that through regular prayer and intercession and intimacy with God, certain parts of their lives, certain spaces or places, actually became a very thin place between heaven and earth. In other words, it didn't take a lot of effort at all to meet with God. There was a wonderful sense that God was already there waiting for them. There was incredible encounters that became a reality to them. The Celtic Christians believed that abiding prayer in a particular location would actually bring about what we would call in our context an open heaven that somehow God was already wanting to, desiring to, and longing to pour out his spirit. Now, if you start studying revivals, you will realize that this thin place is part of the revival culture. In the Hebrides, where the Hebridean revival happened, people would come onto the island who had no context, just holidaymakers, but they would feel the incredible, awesome presence of God as they stepped off the boat onto that tiny island. In the Welsh revival, the miners would come up from their, their, their kind of the mines covered in dirt and dust. And normally they would go to the pub to swill off the, the dust in their throats and have a good bit of a laugh with their mates. But they would come out of these shafts, stand on the ground on the surface and the presence of God would come upon them and they would fall on their faces repenting and seeking to live more gloriously, affectionately and in humility before God. It was a thin place and it happened through abiding, regular, consistent prayer. The Azusa Street Revival, the stories go like this, the Pentecostal Revival in Azusa Street in Los Angeles was that such was the house where the people met, the, the room where the people gathered for prayer, that people who came anywhere near this particular location, this church, would end up being so filled with the Spirit's power that they would fall to their faces. Such was the place that the fire brigade was called out on a regular basis because if you looked at it from a distance, you would think it was so aglow it must be on fire. And in that house, in that place, what we are as a movement, a Pentecostal movement was birthed, a thin place. In the kingdom of heaven, I think location, location, location is quite important. My dream for this house is that when people walk through the door, this would be a thin place. My hope is after these days, weeks, months of just pursuing the presence of God and more importantly allowing him to pursue us, that we won't have to need a special song or a chord sequence to get us into the presence of God. Just walking through the door, we will start to weep because we feel that this is a sin, thin, a sin place, a thin, a thin place. I'm going to tell you this story. Bear with me. We'll finish a quarter past. This is worth hearing. It comes from a book written by a great man of prayer, and uh, he tells this story. I want to tell it and then ask a question at the end. Oh, there's so much. A high-powered businessman came to become a Christian. Everyone was shocked that a man of such capacity would humble himself and accept Jesus Christ as his Savior. And at one meeting when the pastor was preaching, he invited this man to a prayer meeting. And this young man said to him, Pastor, I'm just too busy to pray. I don't have time to pray. I've got a business to run. I've got family responsibilities. I've got 70 or 80 people who I'm taking care of in my business capacity. And so the pastor ponders for a moment, looks the young man in the face and says this. I don't know about you, he said, but I always find time to do the things that I enjoy or value doing. And he just left it at that. Let the Holy Spirit, he thought, bring some conviction. Well, the young man was troubled by the statement and he went away and he pondered it for a number of days and he decided that he would attempt to improve his prayer life. So he bought for himself a rocking chair. And he placed this rocking chair in front of a window and began to get up 20 minutes early each day to pray. 
and to read the Bible. He did this for a while. It was a sacrifice. Every morning seemed to come earlier than he anticipated, but he never came away from that 20 minutes without feeling in some way rewarded. Eventually, over four, five, maybe six months, his wife began to notice that he wasn't as wound up by life as he used to be. He seemed to somehow have a peace about him. Those who worked alongside him were commenting on this fact that he no longer was aggressive or directive, but was kind and intuitive in the way he was talking to his colleagues. Over time, the rocking chair became a place where he encountered God, and months eventually turned into years, and this daily discipline became a holy delight to this man. In that place, it was God who told him to quit his job and stop his business, sell his house and move away from the area. At first, he was confused about that and couldn't really come to terms with that, but eventually, the peace of God caught up with the word of God, and he realized it was God speaking to him. He sold up and moved and relocated his whole family to another place altogether. They had never in their lives experienced such blessing and favor and prosperity during that time of their lives. These conversations with God became life-changing. Several years passed by and he's diagnosed with cancer. But this gentleman now had become so familiar and so desirous to be in his chair, meeting in his thin place with God, that in spite of the chemotherapy, in spite of the problems, in spite of the difficulties in his health, he would manage to drag himself to that chair every single morning. In the last few months of his life, he found strength to do that, even though this was the hardest transition he would ever, ever have to face. On the day of his funeral, friends and family saw his wife grieving. They came to comfort her and they observed that she was standing in the porch looking back across the living room at the chair, the very chair where her husband had sat for many, many years. And they asked her the question, what are you going to do with that now? Is that going to go to the charity shop or are you going to move it to another room? And she said, oh no, no. I'm going to pass it down to our children with the hope that they pass it down to their grandchildren, she said. Because I love this thought that them sitting in it the way he sat in it would cause their hearts to be unburdened from the problems and difficulties of life. That somehow just coming downstairs in the morning and sitting on it for 20 minutes would cause them to know the direction, the purpose, and the plan of God for their lives. I'm hoping, she said, that what my husband started would turn into something for all of my children and my grandchildren because the man in the chair changed the world in which he lived. My ask to you this morning is, oh, where is your chair? And if you want Jesus to teach you how to pray, I suggest you find one. And it doesn't have to be in your lounge, it can be in your car, it can be in a coffee shop, it can be anywhere. But if we want to be taught by Jesus, we must make ourselves available and allow him to teach us how to pray. Swarm, thank you for your patience. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, you're the one who is waiting. And you have life and life in its fullness. And just like the man in the story, will you help us, God, to find a certain place, or even a chair somewhere, where we, in a disciplined way at first, come and just be with you. It's not about what we say. It's about hearing your heart, knowing your heart. It's moving from servanthood to sonship. And Lord, in that place, would you speak to us? Would you minister to us? Let us not presume we know all of the answers when we're not even sure what the questions are. And I ask you, Jesus, please, to turn a certain place into a holy place where there's a thin heaven above it and we encounter you just because we turned up to be with you. Let this church be that place in this city, Lord. Let our homes become that place. Let that coffee shop or that dog walk or our car or wherever it is become that place. And Lord, 
let us find you and be found by you in such a way that transforms everything about us and gives us insight and the advantage to pray more effectively in our world. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.